Good morning. Good morning. Well, thank you for joining us in worship this morning. I'm so glad that you are. You decided to take this day to praise God, thank Him for His Word that changes lives and that works in our hearts to draw us toward Him. This Sunday is also, it just so happens the way the calendar works, that this is the 4th of July, so happy 4th of July. And as I was thinking about this intersection between the 4th of July and the fact that we're coming up to a passage of Scripture that's going to talk about God's Word, it made me reflect on the fact of how important the written Word is for us as Americans. Things that have been written down, how important, how foundational they are to this country. After all, what we celebrate on the 4th of July was the creation, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, a document declaring our country's independence from Great Britain. Our country is founded on our Constitution, another written document. And what's unique about America, there's some other places like it, but what's special about the country is that the basis of our identity as Americans is not intended to be based on our ethnicity. Instead, it's intended to be based on our commitment to the principles in those documents, the Declaration, the Constitution. And so, in a way, Americans are supposed to be people of a written word. Our origin, our base is supposed to be in these written words, these documents. But, for those of us who are Christians, there is another written word that is supposed to define our lives in a far greater way. If we are Christians, we are to be people of God's word. But if you'll notice the title of the sermon, I phrased it as a question. It's, are we a people of God's Word? Because it's easy to hear, oh, Christians are supposed to be about the Bible, about God's Word. Yeah, yeah, that's me. It's easy to say that. But the question is, is that actually true? Are we really a people of God's Word? Is it God's Word that controls and guides us, that gives direction to our lives? Or are we guided by some other things? Are we maybe guided by our emotions, what I'm feeling in the moment? Are we guided by our politics, what political party we like? Are we guided by our preferences? This is the way I think things should be. Are we guided by our desires? This is something I want, and so I live my life for that desire. The truth is, though, if we are followers of God, if we are God's people, if we allow any of those other things to guide us, to be the driving factor in our lives, We will not succeed at reflecting God's kingdom. We will not succeed as being the people that he has called us to be as his church. In fact, the testimony of scripture and and history shows us that God moves when his people become passionate for his word, the Bible. One pastor, Chuck Swindoll, pointed out that common to every genuine revival, every moment where people in history became on fire for God. Common to every genuine revival in history are two primary forces. Number one, the faithful proclamation of the Bible, God's Word, somebody reading, preaching the Bible. And secondly, the responsive mobilization of believers, God's people. God's people responding to what God's Word has said. That is where revival comes. Someone is faithfully proclaiming God's Word and God's people respond to what scripture has said. And those italics he has there are original to, to his book I was reading. It said, God's word, God's people. These are the two factors that are needed for a revival, for change to happen. And so if you want to see change happen in our church, in our community, and in the world around us, then if you are a Christian, you need to be passionate about this book. That is how change happens. And we discover that in our passage today, which is Nehemiah chapter 8. If you haven't been with us, we're looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They're talking about God's people, the Israelites. They had been away in exile for 70 years, away from the promised land, but very slowly they're coming back. They arrive back in the promised land, and they go, now what? What happens now? One of the last people to return is this man, Nehemiah, and he realizes that their city of Jerusalem needs a wall around it to protect the people so they can worship God freely. And he struggles for a while, but he does manage to rebuild the wall. And the very last sermon we had, they finished the wall. But now that the wall's finished, the focus shifts to the relationship between God's people and God's word. 
So if you're not there already, I encourage you to turn your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. If you'd like to use that blue Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, you should find it on page 474. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that one with you when you leave today. And once you're there, in Nehemiah chapter 8, for this week especially, and you'll see why, I'd like to ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's Word and follow along as I read our passage for today. I won't read quite every word, but I'll read most of Nehemiah chapter 8, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Nehemiah 8, starting in verse 1. It says, And all the people were gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And as a list of some of the men who are standing with him. I'll pick up again in verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 7 gives a list of some Levites. It picks up about halfway through the verse and says, The Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Verse 9, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy. To our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Verse 13. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priest and the Levites, they came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found written in the law that the Lord had commanded Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it, publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills, bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, in the square at the water gate and the square at the gate of Ephraim. Verse 17, and all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in booths. For from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. On the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word the basis of how we know you, based on how we know we can be your people through your Son. Thank you for the work of Christ that drew us to yourself. As we look at your word today, teach us to receive your word. Teach us, God, how important it is that we teach it to others. Convict us of our need to be changed by our word. And inspire us that we would respond to your word, God. May we obey what you have said. May we worship you. May you fill us 
with joy because of what you have done for us. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So let's talk through what's happening in this text. A really interesting story. So remember, Nehemiah had just finished rebuilding the wall. But the reason why he was rebuilding the wall was not so that they had the prettiest wall around Jerusalem. It wasn't to be the envy of all the other nations that people would come and look at their awesome wall. The reason he built this wall was so that the people could worship safely. And now the wall is finished and it's time. It is time for them to celebrate what has happened. They are able to worship. So it's about five days after they finish the wall and a crowd gathers together in one of the gates of the city where there was plenty of space for all the people to be. It is now time for God's people to really start over. In many ways, these chapters, chapter 8, and we'll look at 9 and 10, these are really the climax of this book. All the people, the vast majority of them, are now back in the promised land, and they are ready to reform, restart, revive God's nation, his people in the promised land. This emphasis is clear in our chapter. The word people shows up at least 13 times, just in verses 1 through 12 of our passage. This is about the people of God. We read about some key figures. We read about Ezra the priest reading the law. We see Nehemiah helping to lead this. But this story is about God's people coming back to his word and coming back to God. When they get back, they don't sit down and say, well, we need to get more people into Jerusalem. They don't come up with a a growth strategy or a new program. They go back to God's word. A wall that they have means nothing if they're not committed to God. They need to address their faith, reaffirm their commitment to God. The first thing they need to do is receive God's word. And if you have the outline with you, that's the first point. God's people receive God's word. They need to hear it. They need to listen to it. They needed to hear from God again. We saw this in the first few verses. In fact, the people wanted to hear from God's word. They asked. They come together and they ask Ezra, please bring God's word, the law, out so that we can hear it. They are hungering for God's word. They are hungering to receive it. As Pastor James Hamilton says, God's people love God's word. And they are God's people. They've seen what he has done. They say, we want to hear from God. It's not an inconvenience to them. And so they ask this man, Ezra, who we've met before. It's been a while, but now we see him again, a scribe, a teacher. They want him to read God's law. And that's what he does. He reads at the very least what is in our Bibles is the book of Deuteronomy, if not a large chunk of the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch. And it's this reason that, we're, that I argued we see Ezra and Nehemiah as one book. I know there are two in our Bibles, but it's one story flowing together. Ezra and Nehemiah are serving together. They're not trying to take glory from one another, but they're working together for the good of God's people. At this point, Ezra has been there for a long time. Remember, it's been a long time, a few months since we talked about him. He's been in the promised land for 13 years, probably teaching people where he could, telling people God's law is important, we need to follow it. But they've been probably distracted by other things. But now that the walls of the city are built, all the people come to him and say, Ezra, we're ready. Please read us God's word. That must have been an amazing moment for him to see this huge crowd of people hungry for God's word. And Ezra's ready for this moment. We've been told that he's a skilled man. He's skilled in knowing and teaching God's word. Back in the book of Ezra, when we first met him, we read that he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. And so this crowd in front of him is all who could understand were there. There were men, women, and probably some older children. Everyone who could understand because God's word is for everyone. They had not heard this in a long time. It seems the teaching of God's word of scripture had been neglected during their exile and after they returned. They hadn't taken the time to hear it. And we have to remember how different this is from today. So at that time, you couldn't go down to the store, or let's be real, you couldn't log on to Amazon and buy a Bible and have it shipped to you. There were very few copies available, so you needed to come together as people 
to hear somebody read it to you. That was really the only way you could receive God's Word. Now today, you can come here to church and hear somebody read Scripture, and that's an excellent way to receive God's Word. But it's very easy also to get a copy of God's Word and to read it for yourself. Ezra stands up and he talks through the Old Testament law, which is a very long section of Scripture. And on this occasion, he read for probably about six hours from the early morning, sun up, until about midday. He maybe didn't read all of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but he read portions of it. And he's just letting God speak. He's not offering any comment. He is just sitting there reading through a section of the Bible that sometimes we think is boring. But he stands up there and reads it, and the people listen to it because they want their community to be based on God's authority, not on what they want or they desire, their own preferences and opinions. They receive it. They listen attentively. They don't allow any distractions. They want to hear from God. Scholar Mervyn Brenneman said, God's word preached in the power of the Holy Spirit with authority will command attention. And the reading of God's word brings revival. You think, oh, we have to do this exciting thing or that exciting thing, but here they're just reading the section of Bible that some of us think is the most boring section, but these people, hundreds if not thousands, are standing there listening to it, being changed by God's Word. They're looking at Ezra, who's standing on a platform they built so he could read to the people. Our text told us of 13 men who are standing there with him. Maybe they were helping him to hold the scrolls that he was using to read. And as he reads, it truly is an act of corporate worship. He's reading and the people stand in reverence for God's word. They respectfully stand as he reads. They knew the value of scripture. In the New Testament, we read about how valuable God's word really is. We're told that all scripture is breathed out, inspired. It comes from God. It's profitable. It's good for us so that we can teach it for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And whether we're a man or woman of God, we may be complete and equipped for every good work that God calls us to do. Now, as a, just a side note, it's not really what it's teaching here, but it's passages like this are the reason why I ask on, on occasion, not every week, that we stand to honor the reading of God's Word. It's something we see modeled in Scripture in this passage. It's not commanded. They're not saying you absolutely have to stand every time somebody opens a Bible. But I think it can be a helpful practice for us to stand to honor what God is saying. And if you ever feel inclined to complain about it someday, be thankful that you're not standing for six hours like all of them were on that day. So I'll just leave that there. At this occasion, apparently after they read the word, verse 6 tells us that Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answer, amen, amen, because they heard God's word. It revealed what God is like. They agree with what he's saying. They're agreeing and praising, not because they're worshiping this book, the Bible, but because they know the Bible is telling them who God is. It's the only authoritative, 100% true things we know about God can be found here. You can look outside and see beautiful mountains and think, wow, there's a powerful God out there. But the only way you can know that for 100% is because he has told us that in his words. And so the people respond by lifting their hands and bowing down. These are signs of reverence, showing their need for God, their reverence for him, their commitment to obey what he has said. There's other passages in the Old Testament that show them worshiping in this way. Psalm 134 talks about them blessing the Lord, lifting their hands. Second Chronicles 20.18 talks about the people bowing with their face down to the ground to worship God. Now, we often don't respond this way when we hear God's word. Maybe because it's so accessible to us, it's so easy for us to get it. We don't receive God's word with this kind of passion. And I'm not telling you you need to bow down before your Bible every single day. But I would ask this, are we hungry to receive God's word? Are we as excited, longing for the time we get to spend with God in it? The way you can know if you're hungry for God's word is by looking at your life. Do you make the time to read God's word? 
Do you make the time in your schedule to, yes, I'm going to sit down and spend a few minutes? Say, well, I don't have time to sit down and read. I have to run out the door to work. Okay. Well, do you have an audio Bible that you listen to during that time? That's what they were doing that day. They weren't reading it, but they were hearing God's Word read to them. If we're receiving God's Word rightly, we will make the time to hear it and give it the respect it deserves because it is God's Word to us. But God's Word isn't just something we passively receive because God's people not only receive His Word, they are called to teach or preach His Word. God's people teach His Word. We see this in verses 7 and 8 of our text that we looked at. It gave the list of those Levites, and it said they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the teaching. These Levites are moving through the crowd. As Ezra is reading the Bible, they're going out and people say, do you understand what he's saying? Do you understand what, what that point was that he just said? Do you understand how that command applies to your life? They're helping the people to understand what God is saying, instructing them. They're making sure that the word is understood. Perhaps they were explaining some parts that were hard to understand. Somebody says, Mr. Levite, I didn't quite get what that command was about. Okay, let, let, let me tell you, this is how you do it in your life. Here the Levites are doing what God has commanded them to do in the law. In the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 33.10, they say that the Levites shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They also helped him worship. They put incense before you and whole burnt offerings, but they are teaching the law. Second Chronicles shows them doing this. It says they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. They hadn't been doing it for a while, but that is what they are supposed to be doing. In this occasion, they're probably primarily explaining spiritual truth, saying this is how you obey this command. This is how you honor God. They're telling people this is why this law matters, what it means for their lives. They probably had a lot of explaining to do. There may have been some language difficulties. The scriptures were written in Hebrew. Maybe some of the people hadn't been speaking Hebrew for a long time. So they had to help translate some phrases so that they could understand what to do. Some people had grown up completely far away from it, and maybe they didn't understand the, the context or the culture of Scripture. They had lived maybe in some cities in Babylon or elsewhere, and now they're in the land of Israel and trying to understand all these commands about how their land, they should live in a way that honors God. It's actually very similar to what pastors, teachers of God's Word do today. When, when I stand up and I tell you, like I did a few minutes ago, they don't, didn't have copies of God's Word. They needed to listen to somebody saying it. I'm explaining to you what it was like back then. That's exactly what these Levites were doing here. They are early, early preachers of God's Word, explaining to the people what God's law means. The point that the text is driving for us is that God's Word is not just something we read or we hear. It's something that needs to be understood. It needs to be applied to our lives. To do that, we need to teach it and preach it. Friends, you don't get brownie points with God if you show up in heaven and say, God, here's my Bible reading checklist I read every single day of the week. Did you ever apply it to your life? No, but I read it every single day of the week. You don't get extra credit for that. It must change our lives. And if God's Word is going to change our life, sometimes we may need some help understanding how it applies to us, the difference it can make our life. And that's the role of a teacher. That's what these Levites were doing. Verse 8 tells us that they read from the book clearly, and then this wonderful phrase, they gave the sense, they interpreted, they explained what God was saying. They helped the people to see this is the truth, and this is how it impacts you. Some translations may use the word translating. They're translating God's thoughts, his words, to the people so that they could understand him. Again, this is the role of pastors and elders today, taking God's thoughts, translating them to us so that we know what God has said, helping us to understand God's word. It's what they're called to do. The book of 1 Timothy is an instruction to pastors. Paul says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, telling people what Scripture means for their life, and to teaching them 
what the Scripture says. That is what pastors do. They publicly read Scripture, they exhort, and they teach. Now, if somebody's doing that in the role of an elder, they're not necessarily standing up here like I am, but a spiritual elder, a spiritual leader, is somebody who's taking God's Word and instructing someone, teaching them this is what God's Word means, and this is the difference it makes for your life. They value teaching God's Word and prayer as their primary responsibilities. So that's what leaders do, but that doesn't mean if we're not a leader that we're then off the hook, because God's people are to teach His Word to one another. Christ gave us a command to make disciples, to train people to know His Word, to obey what He has taught us. So we should make disciples teach one another what we know of God and have God's Word taught to us. That's why we gather together the times we do. We gather together an hour before the service so that we can be in smaller groups. We can talk about what God's Word has said. Have somebody teach us this is what this part of the Bible means. We gather here so that we can learn. We can hear from God. Learn how we can love Him and live for Him. We gather in small groups on Sunday evenings so that we can encourage one another. This is what it means to apply that Scripture verse to your life. Or if we meet some other time. We gather here on Wednesdays for another time of we need to learn more about God and learn His Word and how we live for Him. We're called to know God's Word, to not only receive it, but to also know it. To know it, we need to teach others or be taught. So let me tell you, we sh- you should seek to know the meaning of Scripture. If you come across something in the Bible, you're like, I don't understand what this means. Don't let it go and move on it. Find somebody and say, can you please help me understand what this part of Scripture means? It is God's Word to you. So God's people are called to teach His Word. But perhaps more importantly than that, God's people are also changed by His Word. God's people not only receive it and they teach it, they are changed by it. They're changed by His Word. God's Word changes and transforms lives. Let me read verses 9 through 12 again to us. It says, Nehemiah was governor, Ezra the priest scribe, the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Why did they have to say that? Because all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So he said to them, Go your way, eat fat, drink, send portions to anyone who has nothing. For this day is holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed the people, saying, Be quiet, this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And the people went on their way to eat, drink, send portions, to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. We see the change that God's word brings to these people. These proud people who thought they were self-sufficient and that they were able to live for God, they're brought to a place of humility because they hear God's law, His word, and realize we're not doing what that says. So much so that Nehemiah, Ezra, the Levites have to go among them and say, you don't have to cry, you don't have to weep right now. They're weeping, they're crying because of their sin against God's word. And they're realizing, you know what? My grandfather, he wasn't doing these things either, so that's why. We went into exile away from the promised land. We weren't doing what God had said. And this breaks their hearts. And this type of mourning for sin is important. However, the problem is this is supposed to be a feast day, a celebration before the Lord. And so Nehemiah, Ezra, they have to tell them, it's great that you're mourning. We can do that a little later. But this day is supposed to be a day for celebrating. As the book of Deuteronomy says that, You shall eat, you shall celebrate before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, is what the text says. This is supposed to be a holy day. The book of Leviticus talks about this particular day. Leviticus 23 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month. That's exactly when we are now. This was written almost a thousand years before this day. But this is what it tells them. What are they to do? They are to observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. They're not to do any ordinary work, and they're to present food offerings to the Lord. So the people are mourning, and there will be time to mourn. They will do that after the feast. That's what 
It's going to happen in chapter 9 that we should look at next week. What happened is God's word changed them. It brought conviction into their lives. We read the scripture earlier. This is what God's word does. God's word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow. It discerns, it knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Israelites have been changed. They've heard God's word. They've realized that they're not doing what it says. They've realized they are broken by their failure to obey it. And they feel their need. We need to change. We need to do something differently because we're not living for God. We are in sin. And let me ask, have we felt this? Have you felt this? Have you ever read God's Word and felt this kind of brokenness before God that you read something and realize, I am definitely not doing that and that it breaks you on the inside? I would go so far as to say that if God's Word has never made you weep or broken your heart, then there may be a problem with your understanding of faith because God tells us that our sin has separated us from God. We should feel that brokenness if we're going to appreciate the Savior who died to restore us to God. This type of sorrow, of brokenness, even weeping for sin, is a good thing. And it's something that's, I think, lacking very much in the world today. We're very quickly to brush that aside and give hope and comfort without hearing the brokenness we should feel and that we have not done what God has said. But the goal of this brokenness is not that we stay there. Some people make that mistake. They stay in this feeling sad spot. But it's that we move to the joy of a relationship with God. That's what they're telling the people to do in our text. Pastor Charles Spurgeon says, holy sorrow is precious before God. It's no bar to godly joy. That sorrow should lead us into greater joy, remembering what God has done for us. And they, that's what they tell the people in our passage. This is supposed to be a day of rejoicing, an occasion for joy. They should celebrate with food and drink. They should celebrate God's gifts. Send food to people who don't have any ready. Offer sacrifices out of gratitude for what he has done. They send gifts to those in need because it's a holiday, a celebration. It's a time to remind the people that their joy is based on God's strength. As verse 10 says, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. It is your stronghold, their refuge. And so the Levites continue this. They go among the people, they pass on the same message, and the people obey. And the people agree. They're like, okay, we'll mourn later. Today, we will rejoice. And the reason they're rejoicing is what the end of verse 12 says. Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. They praise God because they understood what the Bible was saying. They grasped its message. I know I read that, and that, that convicted me because I don't always rejoice when I understand what the Bible is saying. But that is an amazing privilege. Friends, we have the Word of God, God speaking to us. He's communicated to us His thoughts, His desires, who He is. Not only that, but we have wonderful men, women, others who have translated that for us, have passed it down and translated it to us so that we know this is what God has said. And then we can read it. And what if we get it? We understand what it's saying. Oh, that is an immense privilege. That is a moment worthy of worship and all to understand what God has said and what he desires. That's why these people are responding this way. God's word had transformed his people. As Ezra read, their hearts had changed. They heard the word and they started acting in accordance with what they heard. Brothers and sisters, does God's word change us? Or is it just something we read so we can check it off and say, okay, I, I've done that for the day or for the week. The Bible should be changing us. The Bible's not a tool that we wield to knock others and win culture wars. No, it's a communication of God, who he is, to us, his people. And yes, the Bible points out the world's sin and shows us that the world is broken and fallen from God. But you know, the Bible spends a lot more ink talking about the sin in God's people. The people who should know better what they should be doing. It spends a lot more time calling them to turn away from sin and cling closer to God. 
And so if you read the Bible in a way so you can say, well, I know a person who's breaking that one, and I know somebody who's breaking that one, and I'm doing pretty good, then you're not reading the Bible the wrong way. Reading Scripture should convict you. Like these Israelites, if we're reading Scripture correctly, people should have to come to us and tell us, you can stop weeping. Nobody's ever come to me and told me, you can stop weeping, Pastor, from reading Scripture. But that's what they had to do because they were so broken by God's Word. They realized that God's Word needed to change them. and God's conviction should lead to change in our lives. It honors God, but something we talked about at the beginning, when God's Word changes us, that's how the rest of the world around us changes. We can spend all day telling people how they should change, but until we're changed, nothing happens. Remember what Chuck Swindoll said. I read this at the beginning. Common to every genuine revival. Many people coming to know God. Two things happen. God's word is faithfully proclaimed, and people respond. They're mobilized. God's people respond. When God's word is read and God's people respond, that is when those who do not know Christ come to know him. God changes us, and then we respond. And that's the last one we're talking about today. God's people respond to his word. They receive it, they teach it to others, they themselves are changed by it, and then they live it out. They respond to what God has said. Let's read this text, 13 through 18, one more time. We'll see how they're responding to what scripture says. So on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, they came together to Ezra the scribe because they wanted to study the words of the law. And as they're studying it, they found written in the law, the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the people of Israel are supposed to do something. They're to dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And they should proclaim it, publish it in all the towns and in Jerusalem, that people should go out to the hills, Bring these branches, olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, leafy trees, to make these booths as it is written in Scripture. And so the people do that. They go out. They brought them. They made these booths, each on his roof, in the courts, in the courts of the house of God, before the square and the water gate and the gate of Ephraim. And verse 17 says, All the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity, they made these booths and they lived in them. For from the days of Joshua to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was great rejoicing. And we hear that every day, from the first day to the last, that they were hearing more from the book of the law of God. And they kept this feast seven days. They even had a solemn assembly according to the rule. The people received God's word. Now they're ready to apply it, to respond to it. And they do this in three ways in these verses. First, they respond with obedience. They obey what God has said. Our text told us that the leaders, the family heads, they came together the next day. Everybody was there to hear the law, and then the next day, the leaders, the the heads of their households come together because they want to study and gain insight from God's word. These are family leaders, probably particularly fathers. They're taking the initiative. We need to know God so that our families will live for God. So we can go, we can teach our family God's word and what they can do to honor the Lord. These men are humble enough to know, you know, we can't figure this out on ourselves. We need to get together. We need to be taught by you, Ezra the scribe, how we can know what God has said. They want to learn to do better. And so, uh, we already had early preachers. This is uh, 3,000 years ago, Bible study. These men all get together, they open the scroll, they look at it, And they discover something. This is the seventh month, and God has said there's a feast we're supposed to be celebrating in the seventh month. We're approaching the Feast of Booths, of Tabernacles, of Shelters. It's supposed to be a celebration of how God protected his people. They were to build these little shelters and stay in them for seven days to remember how God brought them through the wilderness over 40 years and protected them when they journeyed from Egypt to the Promised Land. The book of Leviticus has this command. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in these booths. And God gives a reason. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt 
says, I am the Lord your God. It was a feast, a time to remember that they were dependent on God. They didn't control their own faith, but they were dependent on him. And while we don't celebrate that today, I think we could take that reminder. We live in very comfortable homes. We're in a building now. We have fans. We have air conditioning. We're very comfortable here. And that comfort we experience can fool us into thinking, well, I'm in charge of my life. I can take care of myself. I have everything I need to live in comfort and peace. But the truth is that God is in charge. The Israelites knew they needed that lesson, and so they knew they needed to proclaim this feast, celebrate it, gather the necessary materials. Elsewhere in Leviticus 23, it tells them that they are to proclaim these feasts when they come. The people are to gather branches, to build booths and shelters like the ones they had in the wilderness. And although this may seem strange to these people who have never done it before, they have been broken by God's word. They have been changed. And so they respond with obedience. They obey God. And they built these little shelters, whether it was on their flat roofs in Jerusalem or anywhere they could find a flat space in the city. They're building a habit. We're going to respond to God's word. Now, look, for us today, we're not commanded to celebrate this feast. I'm not telling you to leave and gather sticks and build a little house in the middle of July out there. But God does call us to do things that we wouldn't do on our own if it was up to us. He calls us to do things that may seem strange to those around us. He tells us we are to make disciples. We are to share with others about the hope that we have in Christ. That's awkward. Well, we don't want to do that on our own, but that is what he tells us to do. He tells us we are to forgive others when we are the ones who have been wronged. That's not something we would do naturally, but that is something God has told us to do. He tells us to not give even. He tells us to care for those who are different than us, who are forgotten and vulnerable. These are just some examples of things that if we do them, that will look weird to other people. They say people don't do that. People look out for themselves and take care of themselves. Why are you doing those things? Well, we're doing them because we're obeying what God has said the proper response to his word. Psalm 119 tells us that his word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We sang that this morning. And Psalm 119 also says that we should meditate on God's precepts, fix our eyes on the way he tells us to go. We should delight in his statutes and not forget his word. If we're responding rightly to God, we will see what he says and we will obey him. And as we obey him, will also worship him. That's their second response. They respond with obedience, but they also respond by worshiping and praising him with this worship. We saw this way back in verse 6. If you look back at verse 6, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. They bowed down their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They heard God's word. They received it. It's changing them on the inside, and they respond by worshiping God. This is a pattern throughout the Old Testament. When they hear from God, they respond. In Exodus 4, Moses comes to the Israelites and tells them that God is going to set them free. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction and suffering, well, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Here, that's what happens as well. Uh, verse 17 tells us this, that everyone, all the assembly had returned from captivity, made these booths and lived in them. Everyone who had returned participated in this feast, in this huge public act of worship. The text even tells us that it had not been celebrated this way from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun. And that might not mean a whole lot to us looking at it, but that's almost a thousand years before this. So for a thousand years, there had never been a celebration with this many people worshiping God together. Now they had celebrated on occasion since then, but this time had greater joy, far greater participation. If you want to think back to just a, a recent experience, if you're here, remember the first time that you came back to church after we had things shut down with COVID? Do you remember the first time you came back and being able to sing and worship God together? The joy that was there? And yes, we are praising God together. We're not sitting at home on couch. We are able to worship Him. Well, that's the kind of joy here. They hadn't had a feast like this, not in 
you know, three months, but in a thousand years they had not celebrated quite this way. I think the NIV makes it clear. It says, from the days of Joshua the son of Nun until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was very great. They were committed to God's word. They were committed to worship. They're not committed in praising God, but they also continue to do what he said. What he said worship is to look like. They read from his law every day. That's what verse 18 said. From the first day to the last, they read from the book of the law of Moses. And again, they're obeying what God had said. Way back in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses commanded that at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, and look when it is, it's supposed to be the Feast of Booths. And they realize, hey, that's where we are right now. And so when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. You're to assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. Be careful to do all the words of this law. They're obeying what God has said. We see this obedience and worship tied together. They even do a solemn assembly that they're supposed to do. Verse 18 tells us about it, and that's a command from Numbers 29. They spend a day to silently ponder what God has done for them and to ponder his word. They're going to continue this worship, this praise, this confession of sin before God into the next few chapters. But I want to take a moment to pause and just see how amazing this is. Their desire, their hunger to worship God. Literally the day before, they had gathered together and they just heard the whole Bible read for like six hours. And I don't know about you, but if I stood for six hours hearing somebody read the Bible and they said, hey, tomorrow we're going to do this again, I, I'm, I may not be as inclined to jump at that opportunity. But that's what they did. They were so hungry. They're like, yes, we want to worship and praise God like this. And so they go there. They're hungry for his word. They want to worship and be reminded of what God had done for them and how they are to respond. God's word fueled their worship and praise. And there's one last feature of how they're responding to God's word that's worth emphasizing. They not only obey, they not only worship, but something happens to them. They are filled with joy. They respond to his word with joy. When we obey God, when we worship him, we join in his joy, his celebration over his people living for him. And more often than not, when we obey God, even when things are hard and difficult, we find joy on the other side. Maybe not right away, maybe very a rough struggle in a moment and doing what we know is right, even though it seems wrong. But on the other side of it, we find joy in God, an abiding joy that comes from obeying him in all circumstances. Verse 17 of our text told us there was very great rejoicing, joy, gladness at this feast. But I think the best phrase to talk about this is one we sang, the very first song this morning, and a phrase we find way back in verse 10, which says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. It is our refuge, our stronghold. Scholar J. Gordon McConwell said, as the people rejoiced in God, delighted in his presence, he would show himself strong to help them and defend them. The joy of the Lord is their strength. True joy comes only from God. It's centered on him. And sometimes we like to separate joy and happiness, and I understand what we mean by that, but joy, true happiness, comes from God, from knowing him. It's not only that he does things for us, but we find joy and peace and something to celebrate in the fact that I have a relationship with God. This holy God who made everything around me, that mountain I can see behind me to the rivers and valleys, the God who made all that wants to know me. Oh, that's just something that should fill us with joy and happiness every day if we take the time to think about it. Joy should be our response as well when we remember what God has done for us. This great God who's done all that, he has been with me today. He helps me. He answers my prayer. Wow. Wow, that's incredible. Again, Mervyn Brenneman says, real joy is an expression of faith in what God can do and what he is doing. It's a response to God's word as we see this is what the Bible says. Wow, I believe God can do that. 
Or we look at something and we say, yes, I've experienced God doing that in my life. It's occasion for joy. These things tie together. We have joy as we're worshiping God and as we're obeying Him. I saw a verse in 2 Chronicles that is all three together. The people of Israel, they were present in Jerusalem. They kept a feast. They're worshiping God seven days with great gladness and joy. So we have that they're obeying God. We have this great joy. And the Levites and priests are praising, worshiping the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. Again, this is a moment for us to look at this picture and then look at ourselves and see if we're reflected in this. Do we have that type of joy in God's Word? Or is it this dry book that we keep on our bookshelves? This is the type of response that God's people should have to His Word. This is a message of joy because it's talking about real people, real things, a real God who wants a relationship with us. In fact, God's Word tells us that that type of joy can be ours through a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the message of God's word that brings that joy. We have sinned and fallen short of God, but God saves through Jesus Christ. Two examples, Romans 3.23, we all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. But just a couple chapters later, the wages of sin, what we earn from it is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the joyful message of God's Word. It is a gospel, a good news for us. It tells us how we can know God and what this God is like. So let me ask you, whether you're here or perhaps you're watching, have you responded to that message of God's Word? Have you called on Christ for salvation, turned away from your sin and said, Jesus, I need you. I want that type of joy that these people have that you are talking about. Now, maybe you, you have, or you profess, yes, I, I, I have a relationship with Jesus, but I don't feel that all the time. Sometimes it's difficult to understand God's word. Well, then maybe practice what the rest of the passage has told us. We should continue to receive more of God's word. Maybe tell somebody what you know about God. Have a commitment to be changed by what God has said. To obey him and to worship him with joy. He is worthy of that response.